Hello, I'm Billy Lyre, and you're listening to the Punks and Pubs podcast. I'm interrupting the start of this episode to tell you about my brand new record, Some Legacy, which was released on Red Scare Industries internationally. You can find this album anywhere you listen to music, and you can buy physical copies from Red Scare, my site, or your favourite local record shop. If they don't have it already, tell those clowns to order it for you. Anyway, that's enough of my jibber-jabber. Hope you're safe out there, and we get to see each other at a show real soon. This song is called The Righteous and the Rats. To this Punks and Pubs podcast, my name is Liam Bird, and I hope my voice finds you well. Right, not done this in a long time, but get ready for a sales pitch. We have t-shirts, and they need you. Uh, we have some new Punks and Pubs t-shirts this time in sexy black. These shirts are organic cotton and ethically sourced and i stay ethically sourced because if you listened to the last episode of punks in pubs we talked about how sweatshops have been a part of the punk community merch wise for quite a while and it's something that i think we should be looking into and trying to eradicate from uh, the music industry so we have purposely gone down the route of sourcing ethically sourced t-shirts because of this, they are slightly more expensive than the old ones. The t-shirts cost £18. That excludes postage. You do also get a free sticker. So, who doesn't fucking love stickers? Uh, you can pick up these shirts by clicking the link in this episode description of this podcast on your phone or your laptop or your iPad or whatever the hell you're listening to me on. Or you can visit Etsy.com and search for the Punks in Pubs podcast and you will see these sleek and sexy shirts. So go pick up a new shirt for the summer so the world is still full of covid uh, we can't do anything about that 
But something we can do about something about, and we have been doing something about, is supporting black communities during this time. Police are still oppressing black communities. This is nothing new, but it's in the limelight right now and it's got everyone's attention. Let's try and keep it because the media will fuck off and it's our job to make sure that this isn't just a flash in the pan, that this is a real thing that we can create change by defunding the police, which doesn't mean completely taking away their money. So continue to make noise because you can see that this movement is working. Give money to uh, charitable organizations that you think can support the black community or support protesters. Educate yourself by finding out those charities. And if you feel safe to do so, go out and protest. But wear a fucking mask. If you're not wearing a mask in a public place, then you're fucking dipshit. Like, if it's some masculinity bullshit, fucking get a grip, man. Like, there's people dying. And the least you can do is just cover your fucking face. Especially if you're British like me. We've got fucked up teeth. No one wants to see this shit. <laughs> oh, just self-hating on my own, my own country. Uh, anyway, uh, so over the past four weeks, we have been political, rightly so, in our episodes. So I thought we'll have a small little respite for an hour and a bit before we go out back out there and try and bring about change. Let's do this. This is episode 58. <laughs> So episode 58 sees me talking via Instagram Live to the director and creator of the Scar documentary, Pick It Up Scar in the 90s, Taylor Morden. Uh, It's a fantastic documentary. If you haven't seen it, you can catch it, I believe, on Amazon Prime globally. The documentary is narrated by Rance's Tim Armstrong. I am a huge fan of Tim's narration. Just the way he speaks, I think, is completely unique to any other voice that's out there and it made me very jealous that I didn't get the opportunity to make documentaries when I was doing that with Tim. So we of course talk about my own love affair of Tim Armstrong in my chat with Taylor Uh, but also the documentary is full of contributors who are the who's who of Scar. So people like Less Than Jake, The Specials, Boz Tones, Real Big Fish, Sublime, Say Farris, The Interrupters, just to name a few. Again, of course, we talk about them. But you'll also find out in my interview with Taylor uh, about his own Scar credentials, having toured globally with his band, having played shows in Japan and China. We talk about them. Uh, Tyler talks about what to do on stage when you're uh, in the brass section, which he was uh, or is, when there's long pauses when you're playing with a band and your section just isn't coming up so you have to kind of stand there and dance (laughs) Taylor talks about how he does that and I ask the important question why do people hate Scar? We had this chat back in mid-April when the UK and parts of America were starting to go into lockdown and you'll find out that Taylor was actually keeping himself very busy by recreating Back to the Future 2 all that to look forward to so take a load off Enjoy episode 58 of Punks and Pubs with myself and Taylor Morden. I'll be back to say goodbye. Enjoy. Bam! There you go. Live. Taylor, how are, you, how are you, my friend? Can you hear me? I can. I'm, I'm doing, doing all right. Great. How are you? I'm well, mate. Great. I'm well. How about this? You know, I'm... like transatlantic, how we can do this. That's crazy. Where are you at? Uh, so I'm in London area, uh, just outside of London, locked inside Great. like uh, the rest of the <laughs> rest of the world. Um, yeah. How are you doing? Let's start that out first. How are you doing? How have you been dealing with like all this shit yeah um i'm doing okay i'm in a small town in oregon which you know um it hasn't really hit us here we are you know under a stay-at-home kind of order but it's you know 
there's there's not much affecting, especially my day to day, because I typically work from home anyway. Yeah. You know, so some things have slowed down, but for the most part, it's not too bad. I'm I feel pretty lucky. Oh, that's good, man. Because I understand that you've actually been using your time quite creatively by reenacting Back to the Future Part Two, scene by scene. Do you want to talk yeah. about that very quickly? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, a couple weeks in, I um, was talking to some other creative folks about projects we could do to kind of stay connected and work together in this in this uh, unique situation we found ourselves in. And uh, what we came up with was doing a scene-for-scene remake of Back to the Future 2, but during quarantine, so just using whatever we had around the house. Like, somebody did a scene with just bananas, somebody did one with potatoes, that kind of thing. Um, There was a lot of little kids acting, a lot of cats and dogs, stuff like that. Uh, And that was a lot of fun, and we got to put that out. It's up on YouTube now. Um, People can just kind of check that out and watch it. It's really silly, so... (laughs) I no, mean, that's what don't people expect need. much when you go to see it. I mean, yeah. so so why two? Not that, why that not one? Idea. Why why two? Why not one? Hoverboards. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> there's there's no hoverboards in the first one, so it's uh, why even bother if you can't have hoverboards? I mean, that's why the future lied to us. There's no fucking hoverboards. Yeah. They've got those fake hoverboards right. that people start calling hoverboards, and I'm like, well, they're not hoverboards. Yeah. Why are you lying to me? No. Obviously, people are probably tuning into this because um, we're going to talk about your documentary, Pick It Up, Sky in the 90s. Um, but before we do that, I thought what would be good is to try and get a better understanding about your background um, and uh, okay. where, where you kind of come in from, like the Scar scenes. Because you grew up with a trumpet in your hand uh as a kid i did was that something Mm -hmm. that was forced upon you by your parents or did you willingly pick up the trumpet no i i chose that i remember there was a day in um second grade i I was in the music class in second grade uh so seven years old and we were playing the recorder which is like a plastic flute toy thing that they let you play when you're seven years old yes mate free blind mice yeah yes yes (laughs) Yes, hot cross bun. That's the ones. Yeah, we we played that, and um, at the end of the year, going into third grade, this this person came in. I, it was probably a eighteen year old kid, but to a seven year old, it was a, a grown uh, grown ass adult who came in, and he had a trumpet, a trombone, and a saxophone. He said, "Next year, you could play one of these things." And I couldn't understand how a trombone would work with no buttons. As a small child, I didn't. Then grasp that, and I saw the saxophone. It had way too many buttons, so so I landed on the trumpet, um, and that was that. You know, the next year we got a cheap rental trumpet from the. I remember it was like from the mall. There was a music store you could rent a rent a horn, and I started playing. Yeah, eight years old, I was trumpet in my hand. So were your parents like, oh well, thank fuck you didn't pick the drums. Or were they like, why didn't you go for the guitar? Uh, no, it was, um, I think they were pretty annoyed. Trumpet's a little loud. You know, it's it's not the drums, but you can't really practice it quietly. Yeah, yeah. At least not without mutes and things. So it was like a struggle because the music teachers would send you home. You were supposed to practice a certain number of hours and get your parents to sign off on the sheet. I remember my mom would sign off on the sheet with our practice or not because she didn't want to hear it. You know, that kind of thing. Let's just pretend I practiced a couple hours. Yeah. Um, but it was fun. Were, were your family yeah. quite musically orientated? Were, were they were the ones like going, music is a great thing, discover it? Or were they kind of reserved and not really into the music? No, they, you know, there was music on in my house. Like my mom would listen to Paul Simon and Cat Stevens when she was cleaning the house on the weekend, stuff like that. But it was not, there was not music in the house at all. It was it was something I did at school to get out of doing schoolwork. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you if you left in the middle of the day to go to the music class, you didn't have to do your state capitals or whatever the other thing was. <laughs> I mean, you need those state capitals, mate. How else are you going to know where you're driving to? I still don't know. Them. <laughs> um, so in regards to the music, if it wasn't from your family, who who was introducing music to you? Not necessarily Scar, but like the first time someone went, listen to this song. It is amazing. Oh, man. Um, I remember as like a 
10, 11 year old kid, I would have some friends that would uh, make mixtapes and, and give me a tape and there would be everything on it, like a crazy mix of like fifties music. And at the time this was in the early nineties. So there would be like really weird, terrible eighties and nineties music on these tapes. And it was always friends. And like, I, I do have an older brother, so he would give me, you know, his music, which was like Billy Joel and um, Chicago, stuff like that. Yeah. And so there was, I was open to knowing that music was a thing, but it was always, you know, I, I wasn't really excited, but I didn't own a tape or a CD or anything until I was probably 13. So with that, then, um, I know you've spoken about when ska kind of entered your life, you were with some friends and you're listening to a uh, a Christian ska band called um, Five Iron Frenzy, which for me, by yes, the way, sir. I didn't even know there was Christian ska. So I've learned something today. Um, so <laughs> yeah. what what was it about that sound that you really enjoyed then? Like, what was it about listening to that band for the first time? You went, oh, this is my jam. Yeah, well, I had heard you know, like Chicago and Billy Joel. And there were bands, there was music that had trumpets in it, like Huey Lewis and the News, things like that. Yeah. But that wasn't really cool to me. Like, it didn't seem like that's something I want to do. As a trumpet player, I never connected with, oh, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to play two notes in the background of a Huey Lewis song here and there. <laughs> that that didn't seem like a good time. So um, I, I very clearly remember being in, uh, high school science class and my friend letting me borrow this five iron frenzy cd and listening to it and the first track came on and it was like punk rock music which i loved at the time i was listening to no effects and Lagwagon and blink 182 and all that and uh it was punk rock music but it had trumpets in it and they were the main part you know it was vocals and then it was horn as this the main melody of the music and that that was life-changing for me. I got to picture myself doing something really cool with this school band instrument that I was playing anyway. So that was just a revelation. And then I I still didn't know it was called ska for probably six months after that. I just knew this one punk rock band that I like has horns in it and these other ones don't. So I'm going to start looking for more ones with horns in them. Hmm. And I would, you know, find, more like that. And there were some, you know, I had heard the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and a couple of dance hall crashers songs and things like that on soundtracks and compilations. So I started to deep dive into that too. So what stopped me? But, um, Sorry, go on. No, I just, uh, those bands didn't have trumpets. Yeah. I, so, saxophones so... and trombones and stuff. So it was very specific for me. Yeah. Having something I could relate to as a trumpet player was a bigger deal than just the sound of the music. Have you ever been close to tragedy or been close to folks who have? Have you ever felt the pain so powerful, so heavy you collapse? So with punk, then, if you're saying you listened to punk before you started getting into to what you would discover as ska, was was part mm-hmm. of you like, okay, I'm playing, I'm, I'm playing this trumpet, but I, I still want to be in a band. I, like, was that already in your thought process of I, I want to do music somehow, but you just didn't know? Oh that yeah. You, do you want to? So w- were you looking? Were you playing other instruments then at that time? Yeah, I was playing. Uh, I was playing bass and my friends had a cool band, but they already had a bass player. So I was just, you know, at home learning Nirvana songs and then on bass trying to graduate up to rancid songs because they're really hard and they had a lot of notes. So I was trying to do that, but I went to a really small school in a really small town. So 
there weren't enough people. We certainly couldn't have made a ska band, but there couldn't have, we couldn't have even made a second punk band. So I was just kind of hanging around with the kids who were in the bands. Um, But yeah, I was definitely gravitated towards that, you know, the skateboarders and the punk rock kids and the, the, we didn't have shows. We had a few house parties where people would set up and play and we'd all hang out usually at my house. So that was a great way in for me uh, to the punk rock scene scene you know rural oregon <laughs> kids play, playing terrible no effects covers that was that was our scene yeah. but um, yeah that was great and then you know it was not long after i heard that five iron frenzy cd and was really getting into this punk and i was trying to convince the punk band of course that they needed a horn section you know like <laughs> you guys the mad caddies do it it's totally fine it's you know don't you don't have to play upstrokes just let me in your band but they weren't having it but uh my school band teacher uh brought a flyer one day that was from a ska band in a nearby town about 45 minutes away looking for a trumpet player and he brought that flyer in and i called the phone number because this was there's no internet no email or anything called the phone number and met up with those guys they gave me a demo tape and said here learn these songs and um yeah within within a year of hearing that music that punk ska for the first time i was playing in a band and we were opening up for the mad caddies at the biggest club in town it was just crazy and that you know i never looked back that was what i wanted to do for i mean still it's still what i want to do so so, so the band that you went to play, or you went and drove for. I mean, who, who, who? What's the name of the band? And when you were driving that forty-five minutes to go and kind of audition, <laughs> how much were you shitting your pants, yeah. going like, "This is what I want to do. What if I fail this?" Like, what was your thought process through that that trip? That's interesting because I think seventeen-year-old uh, kids have a little bit more. I, I don't know, confidence. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's not been beating I the did, shit out you of know, them. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't fit in at school. It was like a lot of football players and a lot of people that I didn't get along with. But I knew, you know, kind of the music kids were my people. So I had met these guys. I had seen their band play. Uh, I was certainly nervous. I remember because the drummer was older. Like these were 18, 19 year old kids. I was 17. But the drummer was like 28. Yeah. Was was it like his band? His great drummer. No, it wasn't his band, but he was, you know, an adult, basically. And he was this badass guy that I think he was their music teacher at their other high school they went to. So that was the connection. But I remember everybody, that's not weird. (laughs) At the time, I mean, ska (laughs) bands in the 90s, anything goes, right? Um, But I remember auditioning, which was you know, playing a couple songs. We probably played like a real big fish song because I could like, we don't, we only have these two songs on this demo tape. So learn these other songs too. Um, And then I remember at the end of it thinking, Oh man, we all got along great. That was super fun. Except the drummer clearly didn't like me. He he had it out for me. He was like, I don't know about this kid. (laughs) So uh, I, I guess he was outvoted because I got a call a couple days later saying, you know, I think one of our trombone players can't make it to the Mad Caddies gig this weekend. Can you learn eight more songs, basically? Yeah. So, so like, you're not in the band, but can you fill in for this show? And then, you know. So your first gig is... I never op- left. Is, is it just stuck around. So the first gig is, is uh, like opening for the Mad Caddies. I mean, mm-hmm. that must be fucking like, what the fuck is happening? You've gone from not being in a band, wanting to be in a band, to yeah. like fronting the start of a Mad Caddy show. I mean, yeah. what were you feeling? Were you, yeah. were, you, were you like full of confidence? Like, this is my fucking time to shine, front of stage, or were you at the back, kind of just hiding behind the drummer? Uh, no, definitely up front. You know, 90s ska bands, the horns, right up front. But I was nervous. I remember being nervous because there were a lot of people, you know, it was like a sold out club. This was 1997, kind of the peak of ska mm. being everywhere. And uh, this was a Mad Caddies show in Eugene, Oregon, and it was packed. And I remember I, 
I had only been to a few concerts in my life at that point and certainly hadn't played anything outside of a, you know, a high school assembly or something with my high school band and we played at the football games, things like that. So this was scary. I remember going up to the stage and being very scared, like, Oh my God, what the fuck is, this is crazy. This is, because there's not another life experience that's similar to that, mm. you know, until you get up on the stage, it's, that's a brand new thing. But like half a song in, I was just like, this is, this is the best. This is the best feeling because people are dancing and, and singing along. The band had existed for a while. So people in town knew, you know, this opening band's songs too. And I, I was just blown away. So who was the band? So, so was, we, we never touched on the name of the oh, band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a band called 007. Okay. And it was like a real big fishy kind of just ska punk. And we were teenagers. Yeah. I I don't know about the hierarchy of a ska band, but where is the trumpet? Because there's the old joke of like, it goes singer, guitarist, and then bass player and drummer kind of fighting at the bottom. Where's the trumpet player in a a ska band then? So if it goes singer, guitarist, bass player, drummer, I think the horn section is just in a different room when you're doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But in talking to all these ska bands for the past few years and meeting all these people and hearing all these stories, it is different in every band. Um, There are bands where there's definitely someone in charge. Um, I've played in bands where you know, the singer will show up and hand out sheet music and say, here's your part, play this. And it's, that's it. And there's a lot of bands like that. And then there's bands where it's totally equal. You know, I think uh, less than Jake is a great example where they're all just equal members. Um, and there's everything in between. There's some, there's a lot of bands where the horn section is kind of a, a click, a little bit separate. And then maybe the rhythm section is another click. Yeah. Um, but I always like fancied myself a singer too. So I would always crowd in on the, the backup vocals and try to get more front of the stage time. Cause when you're a horn player in a ska band, there's a lot of downtime yeah. in between, you know, doodle, doodle, doodle. And then I got to wait through a whole chorus before I play again or whatever it is. So a lot of jumping around and doing whatever we can. Because I, I know a lot of horn players or a lot of the, the brass section kind of become uh, musicians to hire. Like they'll, they'll go on tour and they become the touring brass section. Have, have you joined a band mm-hmm. just for a bit of money and just gone like, these bands suck? And because like you said, you've got that downtime. You need to kind of pretend to dance around. And you're doing that right. if it's a long tour 30, 40 times. Like have you, have you had, don't need to name the bands, but have you done that where I'm actually like, fuck this man. Like what am I yeah. doing? I've never been... I've never been a hired gun for a tour. The only tours I've been on were my own bands and that was great fun, but I have played on, I don't know, 30 or 40 records. A lot of times you never even meet the band, you know, they send you a file and Hey, we need a horn section on this. So, um, those were not all my favorite songs for sure, but you know, God pay the bills, pal. Easy. It's an easy 20 bucks or whatever to play. Play a few notes and email them back. So that was, that's kind of the only thing I've I've done musically like that would be recordings. Hmm. So you like we've, we, when you've been in bands, you've had from from reading, you've had quite a bit of success. So you've gone on and signed to a major in Japan. You've you've toured in China. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck is yeah. touring in China like? Because it, it's it's a it's a country that's always interested me with regards to punk because there is a punk scene in China which I think is such an oxymoron with a government that is so authoritative that there's somehow right. this punk scene thriving. I mean, what was it like for you when you're obviously trying to get a visa and then playing shows? Yeah, so that was we did China because we were already in Japan and this was with my pop punk band in 2008. So we we got off a japan tour and this chinese i don't know if it's a label or a promoter or somebody reached out to us and said hey do you want to do a china tour i'll arrange everything you guys just fly here from japan and we'll make it happen and it it sounded good to me i had toured japan a few times and i love playing music in japan it's the best you know everything is you know the sound people are top notch the venues are amazing the other bands are amazing 
and it's the most fun you can have on tour, in my opinion. So I thought China, right there, how different could it be? Um, it was so different and so like worse than anything I could have imagined. You know, okay, we yeah. showed up, we had like our guitars and a couple backpacks of clothes, and that's it. Because in Japan, they provide you with backline, you know, a nice drum set and a nice amp and all that. In China, they gave you like a little squire practice amp and a like a broken drum set with no crash cymbals and they're just like here you go um and we were traveling on crowded buses and terrible trains and people it was just gross and i had never been to a country like that and i hear there are nice parts of china and <laughs> wonderful people we did not go to those parts or meet those people um the real punk rock kids were really cool you know, the kids in the Ramones t-shirts with the studded leather jackets that were just there. A lot of people came to the shows because it was a show and it was an American band. Not that they had ever heard of anything we had done, but the crowds were cool. Some of the shows were cool, but everything in between was, was rough. Um, I would not do that again. Although I'm sure things are different now. How this many? was pre, you know, we didn't have smartphones or anything. We're just figuring it out as we went how many shows did you do then in china i think eight maybe Ooh. eight or nine and they were all really far apart there was one in beijing and one in shanghai and then the rest were like kind of small towns hmm. all around i say small towns but they're so populated that there's still a lot of people so it was a lot of places i had never heard of and just food i didn't trust and <laughs> you know yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to go to Japan and go to some punk shows in Japan, um, in particular Poly 6 gig that I went to. And um, I heard before that in Japan, it's very, they're very mild mannered. They'll, they'll, they'll be very calm and then clap at the end. That was not what I experienced yeah. at all. It was fucking crazy. And I, I loved it, nice. but it was just, it, it, yeah, it, it just wasn't what I got told a Japanese show was like. I mean, was that the same for you mm -hmm. then? Were you, before you went to Japan for your first show, were you told that they're quite mellow, don't expect it to be like a European or American show? Yeah, yeah, I was warned that because when, when I first went to Japan, it was with uh, my band Pocket Face, which the bass player was the producer of the movie with me. And we went in 2002, but he had been the year before with his other band, and he's half Japanese, and our drummer was from Japan. So they knew exactly what to expect, and they tried to kind of tell us you know, Japanese crowds are different. They might be very quiet and clap politely and things like that. But they also dance a lot more and they're really into audience participation. You know, so if you've got, hey, 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 they're all going to do it. And mm -hmm. it's going to be the loudest thing you've ever heard, that kind of thing. So we would actually like write that stuff into our songs and be like, everybody's going to clap at this part because in Japan they will. And we come back to America and nobody would clap. Nobody would sing along. <laughs> yeah. Be a nightmare. But the first, we flew over to Japan on like a Friday. And because of the time change, we got there and it was like Saturday morning and we got some quick rehearsal. And then our first show was that first day. And it was like at the time, the biggest show I had ever played. It was a festival with 10 or 12,000 people right there. And we were just completely in awe of this giant crowd in this country we've never been to, you know, I'm like 20 years old, never had never left the country before that. And it, that being the first show was so different than what you're talking about, like the punk rock shows and the, the mid-size ska shows and things like that in the clubs are very different than an outdoor festival. And so it was, it was really great. That first tour we got to play, a lot of outdoor festivals, a lot of small clubs, and a lot of bigger clubs. So we kind of got to see all the different types of shows. Your life was built by your own hands You never get the mail 
playing shows you're in the band and then you thought to yourself fuck it this isn't hard enough i want to start making films as a career i mean how did you how did you make that leap yeah. from um playing music to wanting to create art in a different way i mean it's a pretty obvious transition at least to me and it was through music videos so i would be playing in bands um we'd be making our own music videos at first and i kind of knew a little bit about editing but not that much and didn't have a camera. So we'd borrow a camera, things like that. And then later, you know, I'd play in slightly bigger bands or more successful bands and we'd be paying people to make music videos. And right around 2010 or so, uh, the DSLRs started getting really good and they would make these really good looking images, but they were affordable. And so we were paying a crew to make a music video. And I was checking out all their equipment, you know, I was like the, the tech nerd, like, what, what's that do? And what is this? And what are these lights? And what are you doing here? Um, and basically, as soon as it became affordable to have equipment that could make any kind of decent image, I said, okay, for our next music video, instead of paying somebody $2,000 to make it, give me the $2,000, I'll buy the equipment, and then we can make all our music videos for free. Um, and that is kind of how it went. And then I made a bunch of music videos and started making them for other bands and started making commercials for businesses. I shot a lot of weddings. I did all the, all the filmmaking stuff you can do, a lot of corporate work. Um, and then I was living in Washington, D.C. at that time. Um, so there was plenty of work, lots of uh, businesses and corporations and weddings and whatever. And then I moved back to Oregon. And there wasn't a lot of work, so I had all this free time. So I thought, I wonder if I could make a movie, and then I did. You made a movie, but you made you made particularly documentaries. And my background is in radio documentaries, yeah. so I, mm. I, I kind of I understand about building a story and a narrative, and and basically bringing making people think, oh, why should I care about this? And then kind of telling the story. That must be a big jump from making a music video to to creating this like a documentary, a long form project where actually you've got to keep people's attention for for so long. Most of my documentaries are half an hour. I've once made an hour one, and I it, it took it out of me just just an audio. So trying to make a visual one, I mean it. Yeah, like trying to go from idea on the page to on screen how difficult was that especially for your first documentary and understanding because i'm guessing you learn as you as you went along yeah i definitely learned as i went along and i had done enough um kind of short form corporate things you know a lot of companies would want a 10 or 15 minute it's like a documentary right you interview all their people and you shoot footage of their company doing their thing but i've done enough of those to kind of understand the process of gathering all this content and then editing forever. Uh, but the jump from something like a 10 minute short to a feature length film is huge. And it went from being something that I could do in a month to, you know, these things take two, three, four years to make. You know, I'm still I'm working on one right now that I started over three and a half years ago. And that's, that's just the nature of the beast. And so, yeah, I learned a lot as I was going, but it's also just bigger. Mm. It just takes more time and more effort and more money and more of all the things that, and you kind of can't plan that. You can't predict it going in, especially with a documentary, um, because you don't have as much control. You know, I do narrative short films and things like that where there's a script and storyboards and we shoot it and we edit it and that's done. And that's how it is. But with a documentary, you can't really write a script. You can yeah. write an outline and hope to get there. But it's, it's not me telling the story. It's other, it's other people's stories. I'm just gathering it, putting it together and trying to show it to the world. So Hold on to that, folks. I do want to come back to it. But um, I, we, I want to touch on to the fact of um, 
your documentary pick it up um because i watched it a couple of nights ago and uh without blowing too much smoke up your ass i i thought visually <laughs> it was fantastic i i liked the visuals of it and the narrative and the story of it and and how you basically um yeah you i mean you did what it's on the tin you told the story of of the beginning of scar to 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 the 90s uh third wave and and the amount of people you had involved in that documentary like it's a who's who of of scar essentially you've got real big fish caddies buzz tones big d hepcat uh the specials just to name a few obviously real big fish i mean how much of the fact that you came from that world of scar and touring and 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 knowing what it's like kind of got you your foot in the door whereabouts probably someone who is just a filmmaker but don't really know that much about music wouldn't have been able to get those names that you got it did help at the beginning especially ray who helped me produce it, who was the bass player in that band with me. Um, he had never stopped kind of working professionally in music. He was in Japan doing a lot of producing and working with big ska bands over there. Um, any ska band from Japan you've heard of, he's probably worked with. Uh, and he also did a lot of translations. So um, like Angelo from Fishbone uses his help when he goes to Japan as a mm -hmm. translator, as a, something you know like a tour guide kind of but also as a collaborator and the same with uh, miguel from sublime like these people knew ray just enough to where when we came knocking and asked hey we want to make this documentary we're not you know you haven't heard of us you don't know us from anybody but we're ska musicians and ray had enough of a connection and a lot of people we had met before you know, I had opened for Real Big Fish and the Mighty Mighty Boston's and the Caddies and all these bands over the years. Not that they would remember me or know who I am, mm. but it helps. You know, it helps in the email when you're reaching out to say, I'm a filmmaker, but I'm also I'm a big fan of your band. We've met. <laughs> We've played together. I'm also a ska musician. I get it. Yeah. And so. I think that does help to a certain degree, but then a lot of it is just dumb luck and, and word of mouth. You know, you, you put the word out there, especially now in the social media age, if I do a, a post saying, who do I know who knows somebody in a ska band? That's everybody. Everybody knows somebody who's in some ska band. And then maybe that band knows somebody from this band. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, and then there's a few people you know, like uh, Billy, who was in Real Big Fish at the time, and uh, Christian from the Aquabats, they kind of got excited about it, and they told everybody. So by the time we reached out to Tim Armstrong from Rancid, he had already heard about it from Christian from the Aquabats, hmm. which helps a lot. It helps to have people, you know, in the scene talking about it. So after the first few interviews that we did, which were the guys from Save Ferris, Angelo from Fishbone, uh, Darren from Goldfinger, uh, Mike Park was an early one, which was big. He's very respected in the scene. Once we had those done and under our belt, people started to take us more seriously. Hmm. It was a lot easier to say, we're making a movie. Here's who's already in it. Uh, you know, do you want to tell your side of the story? So for the people who haven't seen the movie, um, you, you tell the story of, of Scar starring in Kingston, Kingston and the dance halls and then coming over to the UK with a two-tone scene and then the, bringing the birth of the third wave to America. How important was it for you to tell that story so people got a, kind of like the backstory of actually that Scar wasn't this goofy, dance-around kind of yeah. uh, California sound that actually in the UK played a huge part in racial tension, like bringing down racial tensions. And it really did have kind of this um, unity message. That was big for me. I mean, the two-tone and like the UK social movement and all that was important for me to, to talk about, but it wasn't necessarily my story to tell. There are other documentaries and books and all these things about that that are it, a little bit before my time mm. i came into it in the third wave but i knew that the audience for this movie would be a mixture of people who 
are already fans of Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish and the Mighty Mighty Boston's. And then there's going to be people who don't know what the word ska means. And that's why that big section at the beginning that goes through the whole history and catches people up was so important to me so that you didn't just get that 90s American West Coast third wave silly vibe throughout. You could understand that that was more of an anomaly than the norm, Hmm. you know, and that part of the story is that this offshoot, this different version of this music became more mainstream. And that's part of why it didn't last so long and part of why it didn't necessarily connect with as many people and people didn't take it that seriously. But the genre as a whole of ska is so much bigger and so much, you know, more not legitimate, but like it's broad and it does have a rich history and it has all these aspects to it that most people don't know. And I thought when we were making it, we're like, if we're lucky and this movie comes out any good at all and gets on the internet and people get to see it, there's a strong chance it'll be the only thing they ever learn about ska. Hmm. So we better put as much information in there as we can. Like I think about people like my mom or you know, casual acquaintances, they've seen the movie and everything they know about ska music is what's in the movie. Yeah. So we felt it was very important not to leave out, you know, the Jamaican roots and the two-tone era and even the, the modern day current scene with the underground bands and the Latino bands and all that, because we only got this one chance to tell people about ska. We were not planning on making a sequel. So <laughs> pick it up again. Um, so yeah in that keep it up yeah <laughs> um so you kind of touched on like not having a storyline but you kind of n- had a loose idea of where you wanted to go so from the beginning mm-hmm. to to the end from from when you finish editing how different was the movie from from your original thought of what it should be um this one wasn't that different because it's historical uh uh, some of the ending, some of the what's going on now is different. Hmm. Uh, for example, we touch on the interrupters at the end of the movie as a example of a popular band now that is very much influenced by the third wave of ska. Um, when we started making it, they didn't have a song on the radio. They weren't on MTV. Nobody knew who they were. So that changed. So we had to add that in. And that was kind of the only thing that we didn't have in our original outline. Our original outline was. You know, we want to talk about the history of ska. We want to talk about the the way it rose to popularity in the 90s. And then what the heck happened and where did it go? And and all of that, partly because we lived that story. You know, we were a ska band. And then in the early 2000s, it was very uncool to be in a ska band, uh, in America at least. So we kind of only played in Japan. And that... We, we knew that story because we had lived it. So that was our original outline was if you start in the early, early 90s or the late 80s, really, with Operation Ivy and the Toasters and the Boston's, and you follow that thread throughout like the peak in that summer of 1997 and then the crash in 1999, that's a good story arc. You know, as a as a filmmaker, you want that kind of the underdog rises and then there's a, a conflict. And then the only thing missing was the resolution at the end. But we knew that the music never went away. We knew that there was still a scene and there were still all these bands playing. So we knew there would be that optimistic ending of, yeah, it's at the time it's 2018 or 2019. You can still go to a ska show and it's going to be just as fun as it was in the nineties, if not more. And it's great. And this this still exists. And there were a lot of people. One of my favorite things is people who see the movie who forgot they love ska. Right? They were into it in the 90s briefly and then kind of moved on with their lives. And we show them this movie and they get out all their old records and all their old CDs and they go online and they find out, oh, shit, I can go see the Aquabats next month. I mean, not now, but a year ago <laughs> when people were seeing this movie, they would they would tell me, like, I saw your movie. And then I found out uh, Goldfinger was playing and I went and it was amazing. And it took me right back to the nineties. And so that that's like a great part of it for me is that we could 
let people know that it's still going on, that it's still like a strong scene. Yeah. And then things like the Back to the Beach Festival and the Supernova Festival and these big ska shows that popped up. Again, we didn't plan for that. We couldn't have predicted that there would be, you know, a big ska punk festival in Southern California on the beach. When we started making this movie, nobody, if you had told me there was going to be a show that had all those bands at it and we could just go to it, I would have thought you were crazy. scar because i think that that question has been asked so many times but there are like you, you mentioned the interrupters but in the uk is a band called the skints who who are getting a lot of traction i love the skins amazing band love um, those guys and, so good and then you've got the agrolites coming back specials putting out albums westbound trainer back who are one of my favorite bands who i randomly caught in denver when i was over there just some kind of epitaph show uh like there, there are there does seem to be this kind of love of scar coming back but it's all white but scar has always been that butt of the joke of punk fans in particular of i like scar why the fuck do you like scar and i think as you get older that kind of gets beaten out of you as well like you might like scar as a kid but then as you get older it's like why are you still why are you still listening to scar and for for (laughs) me like i'm a punk kid through and through but i've always loved scar and real big fish is probably one of the bands i've seen the most and every time i go there i still enjoy it it's still a giggle they might be doing like the same set list that they did 20 years ago but that's the reason i'm going yep. there it's because i want to fucking feel like i'm 20 years ago like watching them for the first time um so why do you think scar does have such a shitty rep between like for punk kids or people outside of the scar scene uh that's a dangerous question that's a tricky <laughs> question i think um for me, as someone who played in ska bands, I I have very clear memories of playing punk shows and the fans hating us and spitting on us and throwing things and and that kind of hate. And I I always thought it was uh, kind of because not only is the music less aggressive, more upbeat and happier, but it's also you know, we're wearing bowling shirts or Hawaiian shirts or suits or like the we're dressed in bright colors and we're like the band geeks, you know, there's a saxophone on stage. People don't take kindly to that. At a at like a dive bar punk rock show, you show up with a trombone, a trumpet and a saxophone and people sometimes kinda of look at you funny. But uh big picture wise, I think it's just a lot to do with which songs were on the radio. What's the ska that people know? What do they associate with ska? You know, if you're a person who's only barely heard of it, then you've probably only heard of Real Big Fish and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, right? Or somebody told you that No Doubt was ska and you believe them, that kind of thing. So if all you know about ska is a silly song about drinking beer or, uh, you know, sellout, you're probably going to think that it's all silly. Hmm. And as somebody who's, you know, if you're into punk rock, you don't want silly. You want hardcore, cool, badass. And don't get me wrong. I love that. And I love like rancid when they play a ska song, that's, that's as good as it gets. And nobody makes fun of them for it, you know? Hmm. So there's a little bit of a weird, like maybe if you look cool enough, you can get away with sounding happy and having upstrokes. 
Mate, I'm not, um, I'm not going up to Lars and telling him you look a fool playing Scar. Like a braver man than me. Exactly. Do that. Fuck that noise, man. No one's gonna do that. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Th- so sorry, go on. No, it, I think it just depends on the band. Hmm. It's it's easy to make fun of a band that's a bunch of geeky, you know, scrawny white kids from Southern California, who, if it weren't for ska, would just be, you know, flipping burgers or playing in an orchestra somewhere. <laughs> so that it's kind of. It's like an easy, lowest, low-hanging fruit kind of thing to make fun of a ska band. Like, okay, sure, I guess you're cool now because you made fun of the, the ska band, but <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It never really bothered me. Yeah, it never really bothered me if somebody wants to make fun of your ska band. First of all, it's usually like one or two angry punk rock kids in the crowd, and they, they want to start some shit with a ska band, and they don't realize there's nine of you. Like you're not gonna win that fight. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the, you got to be careful making fun of a ska band because there's God. If there's two ska bands on the bill, there's 20 people there lined up to stand up for you. So punks aren't good at mass. I don't know. That's, that's it, what it is. It, yeah, and it was never there, at least in my experience, between the band. The punk bands got along with the ska bands, who got along with the metal bands and the you know the country rock it was never a thing with musicians really it was the fans Hmm. who would take issue if you were there to see a punk rock band and how dare they have a ska band opening the show you know you'd let that ska band know how how much you thought they sucked i mean i just want to quickly touch on tim armstrong because as an audio person tim's vocals like obviously musically he's fantastic but for for narration he he he's just so unique and the way that he pronunciates certain words to me just sound like beautiful to my ears i mean i know yes. that i know you've spoken about this a lot and and like so tim politely declined about being interviewed but he was intrigued about um narrating um the the, yeah. the doc how much for you was that kind of a game changer to also be able to market the, the the documentary having this guy who is essentially the prince of punk it was huge for me when he he offered to audition to narrate <laughs> um and it made perfect sense because like you said that voice is so distinct and so unique and so to me it's fun like if you grew up listening to rancid or operation ivy which most ska fans listen to both mm. at some point in their lives that voice is like you know a warm blanket from your childhood of like comfort and nostalgia but he's also, you know, he's such an encyclopedia of ska knowledge and just sitting down and talking with him about the music. I, he loves it more than almost anyone I've ever met. And so it was a perfect fit to have him involved and to be able to kind of put his name on it and say, Tim Armstrong gives this movie his blessing was huge uh, for marketing, especially to try to get through to punk rock fans and people who did maybe think Scott was a joke. Hmm. It's, it's harder to write it off when Tim Armstrong is standing behind it and saying, yeah, this is a cool thing. And this is some knowledge you should have. I mean, I the, think, I think that was big for me yeah. as a, you know, as a fan to, to have him involved was huge. I mean, the guy produced Jimmy Cliff's album and got a Grammy for it. So like he, he knows his scar. He knows yeah. his reggae. Like, he's, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we're kind of coming up before Instagram kickers off after an hour. So I just want to quickly talk on, um, you've got another documentary. I think you touched on it earlier on the last blockbuster, which I, is that the one you were talking about where about you've been doing it for a couple of years and you you just obviously COVID has kind of fucked that up. I'm guessing at this point in time, a little bit. Yeah, actually our world premiere was supposed to be right now. Um, in a couple of hours, it was tonight. Oh man. Um, And that is not happening. Clearly <laughs> I'm here with you, um, but we've postponed that till July. And I don't know if that's going to happen either. Nobody knows. So we're kind of just trying to wrap it up and figure out a way to put that movie out so that people can watch it hmm. now. But that's, it's a fun kind of nostalgic look at, at video renting and blockbuster video and, you know, how, how that has changed into just streaming and, people staying at home and it's it's a weird time to be talking about that because now everybody's staying at home and 
streaming has never been more popular than it is right now. So um, that's, again, something we couldn't have predicted that yeah. changes the ending of your movie. <laughs> so that's that's the world we live in. I just want to very quickly see if this is if, if this is you. Are you the same uh, Taylor Morden who is credited as the guitar synth and backing vocals for the Weezer album? uh false metal that's me is it mate yeah death to false metal yeah i i got a producer credit a writer credit and guitar backing vocals and synth on a weezer song that until i started making movies that was like my claim to fame and my my favorite achievement was was playing on a weezer record so was that at home or did you go in the studio with um with the guys no, that was remotely. At the time, I had a home studio, and I had done the Let's Write a Song project with Rivers through YouTube, early YouTube. This was a long, long time ago. And um, basically, the project wrapped up, and they liked my arrangement the best, I guess, or whatever. And I had the multitrack files for that. And so when they went to put it on an album, they contacted me and asked for the files. I sent them to them. They re-recorded it. and then. Like two months later, they came back to me and said, we re-recorded it, but we didn't like our version as much. Can you record it again, you know, better quality and like it's a real song and we'll kind of add to that and that'll be the version we put out. So I did that. I recorded at my home studio and they ended up replacing the drums and the bass and the lead vocals and keeping everything else. So it's my guitars, it's my synth, it's my backing vocals. And and that was crazy to me. I had no idea sending it in what what they were going to keep, what they were going to replace, doing it that way. But that was fun. That was a, a weird phone call to get from Rivers Cuomo. I bet it was, mate. Um, so we're gonna start, we're, we'll wrap up now. But uh, I just want to say thank you for doing this for starters. Uh, how can mm-hmm. people? Um, like find out more about the work that you're doing, particularly if people want to watch um, now they're in lockdown, they want to watch the, the uh, pick it up. How is it on streaming services at all? I know it's ironic. We just talked about blockbuster and now I'm pr- plugging streaming, Yeah, but fuck it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is available to rent at blockbuster. Uh, I, I had a connection, so it's on the shelf at blockbuster, but it's not like you can make it to blockbuster there. So it's on Amazon in uh, at least in the States and in the UK. It's on Amazon to rent. And then uh, anywhere else in the world, if you go to skamovie.com, we have DVDs and Blu-rays and VHS copies. And there is a streaming option through Vimeo for the rest of the world. And we're trying to get it out on more platforms every day. Uh, The big thing right now is we're about to release our vinyl soundtrack, which we're very excited about. It's being manufactured right now. It's supposed to be out already, but it's because of COVID, it's delayed a little bit. Uh, but we got the test pressings in and that thing is going to be rad. Uh, but Instagram is a really good place. We're at ska movie. And my other one is at last blockbuster movie. Uh, last blockbuster movie.com has the trailer for that one, which again, should be out soon. I don't know where, but hopefully, hopefully you'll be able to see that. Fingers crossed, man. Well, thank you for your time, Taylor. And uh, thanks for doing this. And if you're ever in the UK, I'd love to do this over a beer or if you don't drink a, a coffee or whatever sounds great yeah S- stay well pal hopefully we can all travel soon you too exactly <laughs> be well mate bye-bye bye-bye Thank you to Taylor for taking the time to chat to me. You can find out more about his work, including that blockbuster doc, uh, as well as his recreation of Back to the Future 2 in links in this episode description. Also, thank you to Billy Liar for sponsoring this episode and make sure you go check out his new record, Some Legacy, out now on Red Scare Records. Again, link in this episode description. Before we go, the last plug for the Punks and Pubs t-shirts 
£18, excluding postage and packaging. You can pick them up via our Etsy page, link in this episode description, or go search for Punks and Pubs in the Etsy search engine. Go rate and review on iTunes, please. It does help people find the podcast. And don't forget, do something nice for yourself. Be good to yourself. I'll talk to you soon enough. Stay well. Yeah, bye. No more flipping burgers, putting on my silly hat. You know I don't want that no more. And I didn't ask when we get paid. Quit my day job anyway. I guess it doesn't matter.